Let's pray. Lord God, give us uh, wisdom to understand your word. Give us the faith to believe it. Lord, would you give us the strength of will to put into practice what you speak to us through your word now. We pray it for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I've asked Colin to read Psalm 1 and 2 uh, because they actually sort of go together. Uh, they're, they're both a bit of an introduction to the book of Psalms, but today we're just looking at Psalm chapter 2. We're going to focus on that. Uh, but before we do that, I've got a picture of some goldfish. And I want to know which one of these goldfish is free? Which one has freedom? Is it the one in the bowl? Constrained? Restricted? Captive? Or is it the one throwing off the oppressive, claustrophobic fishbowl and leaping into the air to freedom? And the flying goldfish looks like it's the winner, doesn't it? It looks like it's free. It looks like it's heroically fighting off the oppressive forces that held it in captive. It's taking control of its life. It's doing things its way. But you know it's going to happen, right? In a few hours, it's going to be dead. Because outside the bowl, the goldfish has no hope of survival. Its freedom only leads to destruction. In reality, it's the goldfish that's in the bowl that's more free because it's, well, it's alive and it'll stay alive. It's got everything that it needs. Now, the reason I show you this picture is I want to talk a little bit about freedom this morning. And freedom is one of those things that our world just craves. I mean, it's something that we all crave, isn't it? It's one of the most sought after things in our society. Everyone wants to be free. And you do too, I suspect. We all want to be free of debt. We want to be free from stress. You want to be free from sickness. You want to be free from having to work or having a boss tell you what to do. I suspect there's quite a few of you that want to be free of these sometime soon. We want freedom because we really hate the idea of having someone or something else controlling us, dictating how we live. Really, we want no limits, no rules, no restrictions. Well, for the next few minutes, we're going to take a look at Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a song about humanity's quest for freedom. And just like for our two goldfish, Psalm 2 warns us that our quest for freedom may actually destroy us. But at the same time, Psalm 2 points to where freedom truly is, and it's found in an unexpected place. So let's have a look at Psalm 2 together. If you've got your Bible closed, open it back up. Psalm chapter 2. If you're not really familiar with the Psalms, uh, the Psalms are songs, right? They're, they're, They're meant to be sung, or said to God at least. They were the songs that God's people would sing back in Old Testament times. And they've remained the songs that God's people sing right up to today. 
And that puts Psalms in a bit of a unique category in the Bible because they're, at the same time, God's words to us. They're they're scripture, like all of scripture, God's words to us, but they are also our words to God. They're things that we can speak to God. And a huge chunk of the Psalms are written by David. And Psalm 2 doesn't actually tell us who wrote it, but in Acts chapter 4, uh, the apostles attribute it to David. They say David wrote this one, and it seems to make good sense of the content. And so Psalm 2 is David singing to God, and the first thing that he sings is a question. Have a look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. These first three verses, they paint a picture of the people of the world conspiring against God, but also against his anointed one and the anointed one. Uh, That's a title for the king of Israel, the king of God's people, which in this case is David. But that that title, uh, it's from the Old Testament when a new king was selected. He was selected by a priest pouring oil on his head. He was anointed with oil to show that this is God's chosen king. Um, It's a little bit like, like this. A little bit like that. Having Gatorade poured on your head means you're the coach of a winning footy team. If you ever watched the NRL Grand Final or the Super Bowl or anything, this is what happens to the coach at the end of the game. Now, if you've got a sticky head, that means you're a footy coach. But if you've got an oily head, that means you're the king of God's people. This is how they would identify the king. He's the the oily one, the oily-headed one. And so the people of the world are plotting against God and against his King. That word plot in verse 1, it's the same word that's used in Psalm 1 for the godly person who meditates on God's word. So Psalm 1 describes the godly person who delights in the Lord and meditates or plots on how they can serve God But in Psalm 2, you have the nations meditating on how they can overthrow God, how they can work against God's king. So you have the people of the earth plotting against God and against God's king. And the question that David wants to know is, why? Why is everyone against me? Why does everyone seem out to get me? And it's a good question, isn't it? And it's a question that we can actually have ourselves. Maybe not directed to us personally, but why is it that our world is so hostile to God? To the God of love, to the God of grace, to the God who wants good things for people. Why is our world so hostile to him? Why is it that ever since humans walked this earth, we've been determined to do the opposite of what God says? Why is it that things that God calls good, our society calls bad? 
Why do people in our world plot and conspire and rise up against God's design for marriage? Against the goodness of human life, both at its beginning and at its end. Why is it that people are intent on seeing Christian teaching removed from schools? To see faith-based organisations prevented from operating according to their convictions. Why is this so? Why is it that there's nations like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya and Pakistan who despise Christianity so much that they'll actively persecute Christians? Why is it that somewhere in the world today... Eight of our brothers and sisters will be murdered because of what they believe about Jesus Christ. Why is our world so opposed to God? That's the question David asks, and its answer is seen partly in verse 3. What do the rulers of the earth say as they band together against God and against his king? Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The reasons that nations conspire and that people plot and that kings rise up and that rulers band together is because God's rule is a threat to their freedom. They they see God's rule as chains, as shackles. They see it as oppression, as imprisonment. They see it as limiting their control of their lives. And what's true of the nations and kings, it's true of us too, isn't it? Behind every sinful action is a desire, a demand, to be in control of our own lives. We all want to be free. We all want to be autonomous. We all want to be in control of our own lives. And so we rebel against God's rule. We, I mean, at the very least, ignore it or we actively oppose it. Every human heart sees God's rule as a threat. And even those of us who are Christian, who have been given new hearts, who have been given new hearts which love God and love his rule, even we still struggle with submitting to God's rule, don't we? It still offends our human nature. We, we still don't want a God telling us what to do. Now, I wonder if you see the areas in your own life where God's rule threatens your sense of freedom. They'll be there. Do, do you see them? Does God's demand for sexual purity threaten your dreams of sexual freedom? Does God's demand for generosity threaten your pursuit of financial freedom? Do God's expectations on radical discipleship Does his call for you to be radically different from everyone else in the world, does that threaten your desire to be popular or just to be comfortable? Do do you feel the threat of God's rule on your freedom? 
I mean, a very simple example that I can think of in my own life is that uh, Janice and I, we would love to be free from having to rent, particularly in Noosa, where the rental market is just crazy, and we would love to buy our own home. And every now and then, the, the thought crosses our mind, uh, wouldn't it be easier to save for the deposit, to buy our own home, if we didn't have to give <laughs> If we didn't give to church, if we didn't give to missions and to charity, well, wouldn't that be so much easier? And you see, we, as soon as we do that, we start to see God's demands as limiting my freedom. And I start to resent God's demands. It might be easier, but would it be good is the question. Are we tempted to see God's rule as a negative thing in our lives, something to be resisted, something to be rejected. Do you see the areas in your own life where God's rule threatens your own sense of freedom? Do you feel that temptation to oppose God's rule? Or just to kind of pretend that it's not there? Do you feel the temptation to throw off the chains, to break the shackles? Now, we all do at some point. It's a feeling that every human has. In verse 4, God responds to our opposition and to the opposition of the people described in Psalm 2. And God points out that there's a big problem with our pursuit of freedom. And you know it's a big problem when God sees our reaction to his rule and he laughs. And that's exactly what God does. Have a look at verse 4. And the people rise up against God and against God's king. And in verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs at our attempts to plot against him and to reject his authority. It's not because it makes him happy. It's not because it impresses him or amuses him. He laughs because of how ridiculously pathetic it is to think that we could oppose his rule. The idea of a human resisting the all encompassing authority of God is like a toddler on a tricycle thinking they're going to win the Tour de France. It's just pathetic. It's insane. And it's not going to happen. The kings of the earth try and oppose God and God looks at them and says, are you serious? Have you forgotten who I am? I made you. I gave you breath. I'm the one keeping your heart beating at this very instant. And you think you can do life without me? This is the sort of stupidity of opposing God's rule. Do the kings of the earth really think they can beat God? And God questions, do you really think that you can take down my king? The king that I put on the throne. I gave him authority, God says, about David, about the anointed one. And in verse 7 to 9, well, David, he chips in and remembers all the things that God promised him as the anointed king. He remembers God telling him 
that he would be God's son, that he would be that precious to the God who created the universe. David recalls God offering the the whole world as an inheritance. He calls to mind the promise that God would give him authority over all nations of the earth and that he would rule them with an iron scepter. If they're the things that God is going to do for his anointed king, then anyone who tries to oppose God's king, they don't stand a chance. No wonder God was laughing at these kings. He's like, what are you thinking that you can oppose my king? Friends, there's a problem with people trying to oppose God. It's pointless. If you try and oppose God, you won't win. You can plot and conspire. You can rage and kick and have a temper tantrum. You can swear and abuse and protest. Or you can just pretend God's not there, but the end result is going to be the same. God's going to get his way. He is in charge of the world. He rules the earth and nothing that you do will change that. We can rage against it. Or as we see now in verses 10 to 12, we can get on board with it. And when we get on board with it, that's when we'll find true freedom. In Psalm 2, God exposes the futility of trying to overthrow his rule. And the psalm concludes with a simple decision. Be wise or be dead. That's the conclusion of Psalm 2. Have a look at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't be stupid. It's pretty much sums up the message of Psalm 2. Don't be stupid. God is God and he's in control. And don't be an idiot and convince yourself that you are better off without him in control. You can continue to try and rage against God's rule and his reign and he will repay you in kind. God's wrath at our rebellion leads only to destruction. Reject God and get destroyed. The better option, be wise. Don't try and overthrow the one who created the earth. Serve him and celebrate his rule. Take refuge in him and find blessing. And it's here that you see the irony of this whole situation. Because the person that tries to take freedom by resisting God's rule, well, they lose freedom, don't they? Because they lose their lives. But the person who loses their freedom by submitting to God's rule, well, they gain perfect freedom. They gain life. They gain blessing 
by taking refuge in the powerful God. Well, all this leads us to ask ourselves the question, and for me to ask you the question, are you free? Are you free? And the way to know if you are truly free is to ask yourself, who is ruling in your life? Are you in control of your life? Do you live by your own standards? Do you do what you want to do when you want to do it because you want to do it? Sounds great, doesn't it? It's what we all want deep down, isn't it? We don't want someone else dictating how we live. We just want to do what we want to do. We want to live for ourselves. It's a life of freedom. A life without someone else calling the shots. And it sounds good. But it has a massive problem. And Psalm 2 shows us that whenever you live for yourself, and whenever you make decisions about how you use your time, and about how you use your money, and about how you use your energy... Whenever you do that, whenever you're motivated only by your own will, by what you want, well, you've made yourself your own God. You've claimed the title of world's most important person. You've claimed that for yourself. Now, you're thinking, steady on, I'm not like a megalomaniac. I'm not trying to have everyone worship me. But the Bible's picture of sin is just this. No, sin isn't doing naughty things. It's usurping God's authority. It's us trying to claim an authority over our own lives that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And so as we've just seen in Psalm chapter 2, challenging God's authority, well, it leads to our destruction. We can't live without God. Living for yourself doesn't make you free. Our world tells us that living for ourselves makes you perfectly free, and it's a lie. Living for yourself makes you an enemy of God. It makes you opposed to the one who gives life. It makes you like a goldfish jumping out of the bowl. It doesn't end well. So what's the alternative for us? Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate the rule of his anointed king. Now, we don't live in King David's time anymore. But Psalm 2 isn't just about King David. Because in verse 2, the Hebrew word for anointed one is the word Messiah. When you translate that word into Greek, we get the word Christ. You see, it's it's Jesus Christ who is God's ultimate anointed one. He is the one who God has chosen to be king. The one that the nations conspired against and that the rulers banded together to oppose. But even when they killed him, they did not thwart God's rule. Because Jesus is the king in verse 6 that God installed on Mount Zion. Jesus is the one to whom God said in verse 7, You are my son. 
He is the one to whom God has given all the nations as an inheritance. He is the one that rules all nations with an iron scepter. But most importantly, Jesus is the one that provides refuge to rebels like you and me in need of forgiveness. So friends, serve him and celebrate his rule. Truly, we can celebrate that Jesus is king and that we're not. That is a far better thing than you being in control of your own life. You deciding how you live leads to destruction. Jesus calling the shots leads to freedom. To serve him, celebrate his rule and let his will dictate how you live. Which means do, doing what Jesus says, even when it's hard, even when it seems restrictive, even when it seems like it threatens your freedom. Because as Jesus says in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let me pray. Our Lord... Our hearts are hardened against you. Uh, we see that every day. We know the calls that you place on our lives. We know your will through your word. We know how you want us to live, how you want us to love. And we know that we resist that. We know that our sinful selves crave independence from you that we that we want a freedom without you now the lord we know it's not good for us we know it doesn't bring life it only brings death and so lord we ask that you would give us the will to submit to you as our king help us to put together that uh, put to death that tendency to oppose you to plot against your rule Lord, help us to see that your rule is something to be celebrated, that it is good for us. And Lord, would you help us bow the knee before your anointed one? Lord, we praise you that Jesus reigns as king, that all the nations are his inheritance, that his rule will never end. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to take refuge in him, no longer opposing you, no longer resisting you, but serving you and taking refuge in you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.